0: Welcome back SGO listeners. This is our second installment on keeping up with the chemos where we are going over trabectidin in the soft tissue sarcomas and lyomyosarcoma. I am Tracy Lynn Hall. I'm a gynecologic oncologist at Baylor College of Medicine in Houston, Texas,
1: and I am joined by I'm co-moderating tonight with Tracy Lynn. I'm Jennifer McDonald, clinical pharmacy specialist at the Medical University of South Carolina in Charleston.
2: Hi, I'm Sam Bose. I'm a gynecologic medical oncologist at Memorial Sloan Cancer
3: Center in New York City.
4: Hi, Josh Cohen, gynecologic oncologist with City of Hope, Orange County in Southern California.
3: I'm Claire Mock. I'm a clinical pharmacy specialist at Harris Health in Houston, Texas.
0: All right. Well, one of the things that we know with Travectidin is that it tends to be given over a 24-hour infusion. So we don't have a lot of medications in the gynecologic oncology space that we send patients home with a pump. I'm flashing back to the days of doing IP chemo and having inpatient admissions, but definitely a lot has changed since then. So Dr. Bose, Dr. Cohen, Dr. Mott, can you talk to us a little bit about getting pumps set up and what do we need to do when we're actually handling the pump infusions?
4: I think it's about education for the patient. And so having ensuring that you have nursing staff who can work with them or uh, allied health professionals who can show them how to use the pump, how to troubleshoot. So that first visit is really important. Making sure someone feels comfortable going home with a pump for 24 hours and then bringing the pump back. That's really important. And then for me, education about side effects uh, are really important for this. So We mentioned fibrotic neutropenia in the last podcast, and that's a real risk for this drug and educating someone about those fevers and, and when to call, and then also potentially thinking about growth factor support early on. But those are some of the things that crossed my mind initially, and then just education about side effects with nausea, decreased appetite, and then uh, hair change. Uh, hair, hair can often turn colors a little bit. And so just making sure patients have a, a sense of all these things before that first infusion can be really important for medication adherence.
3: So one of the things that we have done in our low resource setting is we actually do not use a pump. We actually don't have access uh, currently to uh, infusion pumps for the outpatient setting that patients can take home just simply because the charge for that is something that our uninsured patients cannot afford. So we have come up with a way to give this using an elastomeric pump. And so that's very, very easy for patients to be able to have that. They just get it hooked up with the nurses on one day and the next day they return to get it disconnected. And that has worked well for us, for our patients who have been getting trabecidin so far. So it's a little bit different. I don't know if anyone else wants to speak to more about how they handle the pump at their institution, because I think we're a little bit different in how we do this.
0: Dr. Bose, how are you doing that at Memorial Sloan Kettering?
3: I think we
2: similarly to City of Hope have a 24-hour pump that's set up. I'm lucky to be in a high resource setting setting as well, where most of the patients don't have issues having the 24-hour pump and coming back to get it removed. But that's just on the setting and the resources that you have.
1: I will speak to you at our institution, I guess, from a pharmacy perspective, you you could get home health involved if you have access to that for discharge the next day, if the patients can't come back and you can send home health to their home or their house to get disconnect taken care of. I worked at a previous institution too, who actually contracted their pumps out through a third- party company. So they rented the pumps from that third party as an institution, and then were able to give them to patients to use. So I guess if your institution doesn't have their own pumps that they own, I think there are some creative ways as an institution you could get access to pumps if, you know, that's something that you would like to explore or look into. So I think there's some creative ways that you could get with some of these pumps sometimes. But yes, resources can definitely be a rate limiting step here, depending upon your area and the patient interest insurance and kind of access to care that may
4: limit you? I think for our gynecologic oncologists that are on the line that are perhaps doing their own systemic treatments, this is an example, again, of a situation where we may not do a lot of treatments that involve pumps. So reaching out to your wonderful medical oncology colleagues that might be down the hall or in the same institution as you who do, for instance, a lot of colon cancer chemotherapy, like Full Fox. So if you have have colleagues that do have access to pumps, perhaps uh, that are in your larger cancer center. Or maybe you're in a group practice uh, in a more rural community, asking your medical oncology colleagues, maybe they could even work with you to do the infusions if they do have access to pumps for other tumor subtypes. And so this is where reaching out and collaborating could make a big difference for offering this drug or not.
0: That's great information. We've talked a little bit about this being highly emetogenic. We've talked a little bit about how it affects counts. What pre-medications are you routinely giving before you initiate trabecidin as well as with subsequent cycles?
2: We usually pre medicate with pretty high dose of IV dexamethasone, which also acts as an anti emetic as well, in addition to limiting hypersensitivity reactions. So that's part of our pre medication. All of our patients get sent home with Zofran as well to use as needed. And then in terms of other so like we usually give aloxia as well on day one with the infusion to help with nausea as well. I don't know if that's different in other institutions, Dr. Mock or Dr. Cohen.
3: So with trabectedin, it's recommended to give dexamethasone 20 milligram IV prior to each infusion. And then in addition to that, if you're using it as a single agent, it's going to be classified as a moderate risk emetogenic agent. And for Moderate risk, generally they're going to recommend, you have kind kind of three options within the NCCN guidelines that can kind of guide you. You can choose 5-HT3, whichever is your institutional preferred agent, and then Potentially they can either go home if, they, if you choose the, the 5-H3T with steroid, they would go home with either dex on additional days if they're having issues with nausea or a 5-HT3 monotherapy is an option as well. You can also choose a regimen that has olanzapine and palonosetron in dex and then they would have olanzapine as their take home. And then you could use an NK1 with this as well. And then your choice of kind of agents. We typically do not do additional dex for those days two and three, we just offered them a 5-HT3, like uh, on Danzatron, because we are using Fosaprepitant as our NK1. But I've realized different sites may use different agents. If you're using this in combination with doxorubicin, that bumps you up to the highly metagenic risk. And so you're going to follow one of the choices in the NCCN guidelines for highly regimens. And those are all three to four drug regimens. So you're going to have a, typically an NK1, a 5-HT3 the dexamethasone that you're going to be giving with the trebectadine anyways, and then possibly olanzapine added onto that if they're having a lot of nausea.
4: That was well summarized. I have have nothing to add to that except to say that uh, we do send patients home with dex for a couple of days, but I think everything Dr. Mock outlined is really wonderful.
1: So the next thing that I wanted to touch on, obviously we didn't really talk a lot about this, but if you do happen to do the combination of doxorubicin with trebectadine, just to give a little Side caveat. Obviously, the infusion becomes a three hour infusion for trabectedin in comparison to the 24 hour infusion that we've primarily been discussing. How does your growth factor recommendation, I guess I'm thinking more so for the fellows who may be listening, right? How does your new recommendations change when you give a 24 hour continuous infusion versus when you just have like a single day chemo, right? Where they get all their chemo in one day and then maybe you could place like an on body injector for new to inject the next day? So I guess more timing, like when do they give the growth factor after the 24-hour infusion? Do you have them wait 24 hours after their infusion is complete? Do you just go ahead and have them inject as soon as their 24-hour infusion is complete? Like what is your general recommendation to patients as far as timing of that growth factor?
3: My situation is probably a little bit different in a low resource setting where we don't have The ability to do on-body injectors for a patient, typically for the three-hour infusion, we would give it the next day. So we may have them come back if we have to give it in the clinic, depending upon their situation. Or for some of our patients, they can actually pick it up from our pharmacy, but that depends upon whether they're insured, uninsured, some different factors for our institution. For the 24-hour infusion, most commonly, we would probably do that upon disconnect. And I'm not sure what other sites do. I think we do typically new last on day two, if we're doing the three-hour
2: infusion.
4: What about for your 24-hour infusion? For a 24-hour infusion, we don't prophylactically. I can tell you for us, what I've done is that we usually, when they come to bring back the pump after the 24 hour infusion, we'll actually do the injection on that day. On day uh, I, I know there's some variation there, but I've seems like patients have done well. So for 24 hour infusions, I feel comfortable with them doing the injection when they return the pump the next day. I know there's some practice variation. I'd love to hear from Obviously our PharmDs, if there's anything, any concerns about that, but that's what we've done to make it easier versus having them to come back again the day after, do another injection at that point.
3: Any pump disconnect we give at pump disconnect. So that's kind of our standard practice at our site.
1: And I will say to your point earlier, Dr. Cohen, drawing from like our medical oncology colleagues or like other disease sites. So GI has some good data that despite like continuous infusions, you can kind of do it instead of waiting that normal 24 hour period that you wait after chemo that you can do it at pump disconnect and not compromise efficacy. So the general thought always was right that like, if you give it during chemo, that you're just going to kill off any cells that you stimulate. If you do it too soon after chemo, uh, we don't tend to have seen those same things. I think the stereotypical like NCCN guideline data is that you wait 24 hours after the completion of the chemo to give the injection. But I don't think that's clinical practice as far as what people actually do in practice. So I know some institutions who If they don't come back the next day for pump disconnect and they do it at home or Home Health does it, they still will place the on-body injector when they start the Trebectadine pump because it will inject 27 hours later. So it's about three hours after their pump is disconnected that they'll get the injection. So anyways, just some kind of fun caveats to discuss about how to do some of these things in your clinical practice. The other thing that I wanted to mention just briefly is that if you're sending a patient with a pump, the pump should come with an emergency contact number associated with it. That's a 24-hour contact number. And that just becomes important if the pump malfunctions for some reason, right? So let's say it's supposed to go over 24 hours, but they notice their bag is empty in two to three hours. Or let's say that they do notice some extravasation, right? Like in this 24-hour period, they do have a contact number, one with the pump, but also as we've previously discussed, should have good contact information to reach out to someone in clinic to handle those situations or malfunctions should, or I guess, when they possibly occur.
0: Well, this has all been some really great information. Any other pearls of initiation to wrap up this podcast?
2: The only other thing I would add is that I often get, especially if you're going to think about doing the... Docs and the Trebactatin together, I get cardiology or a cardiologist involved um, fairly early to help with monitoring and make sure that you're getting an echo every couple months.
4: And then just other concurrent medications, just like anytime you're starting a new treatment, just make sure there are no uh, other contraindications as far as medications that these patients are on. Polypharmacy is real. And so again it's rare but it's it's worth going through their medication list.
1: Okay, great. Well, I want to thank you for listening to the second installment of our Terbectidin podcast speaking to administration considerations. Some of the key highlights, I guess, that I'm going to take from this are just making sure that you pick appropriate pre-medications based on your institutional policies for either a moderate emetogenic chemo, if you're using it single agent, if you're combining it with doxorubicin to consider it as high emetogenic. A growth factor sounds like there may be some differences in practice as far as whether you use it prophylactically or reactionary to febrile neutropenia, but whatever your practice is and maybe your patient's history is might help you determine when you're going to use growth factor, if you're going to start with it or add it later, and just making sure they have good access to care to support this infusion. So we appreciate you listening. And we hope you will tune in for our third and final podcast on trabectidin, talking about monitoring, follow up and adverse reactions. Thanks.
0: The information presented is that of the contributing faculty and presenters and does not necessarily represent the views of the Society of Gynecologic Oncology or any named company or organization providing financial support. Specific therapies discussed may not be approved and or specified for use as indicated by the faculty or presenters. If you like what you heard today, please let us know by leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and hitting the follow button wherever you're listening. If you have suggestions for future SGO On The Go podcasts, please email us directly at education at sgo.org.